Well, you know, as we have been, we've been walking through a series, taking a break from our normal series in the book of Matthew on uh, church offices. So we have talked about starting with the foundational church office, members. Uh, the members are those who have a priestly duty. They make disciples. They evangelize. They give instruction to one another. They do the ordinances of baptism in the Lord's Supper. They have an authority of command. And then next we talked about elders. We talked about those who shepherd the members, those who kind of train the members in how to do their job. They have an authority of counsel. And then last week we started to talk about deacons. Deacons, the third office in the church. Deacons are those who assist the elders so that the elders can focus on prayer in the ministry of the word. Now when you hear that notion of being a deacon, it kind of sounds lowly, it kind of sounds unimportant, it kind of sounds like it doesn't necessarily have that much impact. And if you believe that, I want to introduce you to a deacon from year 258. And I want to, his name is Lawrence, and I want to show you what sort of character that deacons are supposed to have. And that'll introduce our sermon this morning as we talk about what are deacons supposed to be. We talked last week about what are deacons supposed to do, but who are they supposed to be? And I think this gives a nice portrait from Lawrence from 258 of what sort of metal, what sort of character deacons are supposed to have. So let's travel to ancient Rome, epicenter of the mightiest empire on earth. Only eight years have passed since Emperor Decius sought to exterminate all who refused to pledge allegiance to his sovereign rule. Untold Christians were killed. It is now A.D. 258, and a man named Lawrence is one of seven deacons serving in Rome. His task is to oversee the church's money and distri distribution to the poor. In August, the news hits. Decius's successor, Valerian, has issued a chilling edict. All bishops... Priests and deacons must be rounded up and killed. Lawrence is soon taken before the magistrate. The offer? Surrender the treasure of the church and you will be freed. The deacon agrees. He only requests three days to retrieve it. Leaving the court, Lawrence wastes no time. He entrusts the church's money to safe hands and then gathers together the sick the aged, the poor, the widowed, and the orphaned. At last he returns to the court, pitiful band in tow. Incensed by the commotion, the magistrate demands an explanation. Lawrence responds, Sir, I have brought what you asked for. Then gesturing towards the people he's gathered, he declares, These are the treasures of the church. Subsequently sentenced to a martyr's death, the deacon endures the flames with startling calm even quipping to his executioners, you may turn me over, I'm done on this side. The spectacle of Lawrence's profound courage makes a great impression on the people of Rome, leading to many conversions. That's the character of a true deacon. We see it throughout the church's history. And so even though last week we started briefly just discussing this idea of deacons as assistants to the elders, the the bigger question, and the one that Scripture focuses on, is what sort of character are these men and women supposed to have? 
And you see a picture of the sort of character in the story of Lawrence from A.D. 258. And so that's what we're going to investigate today. What does that character look like? How does the Bible describe that? And so here's the big idea for this morning. Deacons, as assistants to the elders, must be dignified with faithful faith. Deacons, as assistants to the elders, must be dignified with faithful faith. Now, I have a disclaimer before we proceed with working through this text. I keep using the term deacons, and in our church, in our context, we have both deacons and deaconesses. But I mentioned last week that um, the Bible just uses one term for both male and female. And so you're going to hear me throughout this sermon just say the word deacon, but I am not excluding women from that role. In fact, I will argue for it later on in the sermon. So when I'm using the, uh, the title deacon, I'm using it as a category to both encompass male and female deacons. That being said, let's go ahead and talk about from 1 Timothy 3, the character quality of deacons. And so what we see first in verses 8 through 10 in 1 Timothy 3 is the general character qualifications for deacons. Uh, Paul has instructed Timothy. Timothy is like this, he's kind of this, uh, Timothy's not a pastor. He's kind of an interim step-in apostolic delegate for Paul in the church in Ephesus. That's where Timothy is. And Paul has laid out for Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, he said, okay, here's who the elders, here's who the overseers are supposed to be. And so we went through those qualifications a couple weeks ago in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. And then he turns a corner in verse 8, and he focuses on one of the other offices. And he says this in verse 8, deacons likewise, likewise to the elders, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Now we look at this list, this list of character qualities. And like what we said with the elders, these are, these are representative. They are not exhaustive. So uh, the idea as a whole, as you get, is very much the same as elders. These men, are suppo- men and women are to be above reproach. He starts by focusing on men. It's framed in that way. But you can kind of think about and go down the list as each of these qualities and how that is necessary for an assistant to the elders. The elders are overseeing the flock. They're seeking to shepherd God's people, uh, to, to follow Christ. And uh, the deacons are assistants. That's what we argued last week. So you could really read this like this. Assistants, likewise. Assistants to the elders, likewise, must be dignified. Now, what's this idea of dignified? The idea of dignified is um, someone who has... Uh, Yes, good character, and character that can be emulated. So someone who's dignified, the uh, Christians around someone who's dignified can say, look at this person and say, wow, this this guy is dignified, he's exemplary, he can be followed. And that can make sense, right? Because as as the deacons are carrying out tasks on behalf of the elders, they're assisting the elders, well, the elders to be above reproach, so must... The, um, the, the deacons, they got to be dignified. They had to have an example as they carry out those tasks. Otherwise, it's going to bring the church and even the eldership into disrepute. What else? Not double-tongued. Not double-tongued. It's a very uh, kind of evocative word. This, this notion is you're not saying two things. What does he mean by that? Well, 
I think we get the notion if someone says one thing to one person and then another thing to another person, or one thing is said, but then another is done. It's disingenuous speech is what is happening here. Well, think about this in the context of the deacons assisting the elders. The elders are saying, hey, uh, could you help us by doing this task? Okay, I will go do it. But if that person is double-tongued and they don't follow through and they do in something else, or maybe in representing some of the needs of the body, the needs of the congregation to the elders, uh, this person says, oh yeah, I'll report that to the elders, and then they say something else, that's not going to work. That's going to be not dignified. It's going to be not above reproach. And so a deacon must not be double-tongued. Say one thing and then do another. He must not be addicted to much wine. This is similar to one that, uh, a character quality that was happening in, for the elders. Uh, being addicted to much wine, you're devo- the idea is being devoted to much wine. Like you're going after alcohol, you're going after substance for whatever reason. But that's not going to work if you're an assistant to the elder, right? Because the elders are giving you tasks to carry out. And if you're consumed with wine, maybe, you, maybe the elders entrust you with some money and then you go blow it on, on alcohol or some other substance or uh, something like that, that's not going to work. You need to have someone who's not devoted to much wine, someone who's enslaved to it. And the next one makes sense as well, not greedy for shameful gain. Again, uh, throughout history, uh, deacons have been entrusted with uh, finances, uh, large sums of money on behalf of the church. Well, if that person is greedy for shameful gain, they're going to pocket it like Judas They're going to pocket and pull from the money bag. So this person must have a character that is dignified and in particular must not be greedy for shameful gain. Then we get an interesting interesting character qualification. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now what does that mean? What does it mean for deacons to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Uh, I thought if we were talking about the faith, um, I thought that was kind of the job of the elders. They're the ones supposed to be teaching. They're supposed to be teaching with regard to the faith, and they are. And uh, what, what, is, what is this deal? They must hold the mystery of the faith. Well, I'm grateful that Andre read through verse 16, because verse 16 defines what, what Paul is talking about to Timothy. Notice in verse 14, Paul kind of breaks his flow, and he tells Timothy, hey, all these things I'm telling you, and really the th- the, these things that Paul is writing to Timothy, it reaches back to chapter 2, because if you were to go back to chapter 2, you would see more generic instructions for men in the church and women in the church. Uh, but Paul's saying, hey, all this stuff, including the men in the church, women in the church, the offices that I'm telling you about, it's all about rightly ordering God's household. Rightly ordering God's household. We've said before the church is an organism. There's a vitality and organic life to it, but there's also structure. There's also order to it, which is why we've been going about the series. How do we all do our jobs rightly? And that's what Paul is describing to Timothy. But notice this. He says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And then he goes on to describe the central truth, which is what the whole church is organized around. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery, same word that he uses back up in 3.9, of godliness. And that word there for godliness, it's more the idea of devotion. So Christians are devoted. 
They're devoted to something. What are they devoted to? And this idea of a mystery is not like, ooh, it's mysterious, but this is something that God has known for all eternity, and now he has revealed. Now he has revealed. The idea of a mystery is like, this is something that has now been revealed. It's profound, but now it's revealed. And what is that truth? He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. What is that? It's a description of the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Not at every single point, but a poetic way of describing that arc of God the Son taking a human nature, adding a human nature to his divine nature, becoming man, living a life that is seen to be lived in the power of the Spirit. Think about Jesus as he does his earthly ministry. He's reliant on the power of the Spirit. And then what? That whole, his whole life, especially his death and resurrection, results in what? Proclamation. That's what Jesus wanted. Proclamation to the nations. The, nation, the proclamation of what? That Jesus is the rightful king of the world, of every individual soul. That he will come again to rule over the world. And in the meantime, he was taken up into glory. He is at the right hand of the Father. He lives today. He sees everything that is going on on earth. He reigns over his church from heaven. All of that is a summary of the gospel, a poetic way of describing the gospel, which is why the church exists. It's why these people are in this room. People from all sorts of different backgrounds and cultures and bents and socioeconomic statuses and all of it. What is it all about? What does it all come back to? What is our devotion? Our devotion is to Jesus Christ. Our devotion is to the mystery that is revealed of, the, um, of God becoming flesh, dying in behalf of his people, rising again, ascending on high, and looking ahead for him to come back and reign and to rescue his people who belong to him through repentance and faith. And so when we go back to 3.9, when uh, Paul says to Timothy, all right, here, you're looking for deacons, what are you looking for? He ends that kind of initial list, again, a representative list, not an exhaustive list, by saying they, the deacons, must hold, hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. What is he saying? He's saying the deacons had better hold on, cling to the thing that makes us Christians. And they've got to hold on to it in a clear conscience. What does that mean? Well, the gospel of Jesus um, is first, uh, uh, it's the reality that we all have guilty consciences before God, and we deserve his eternal wrath. Uh, uh, some of the testimonies that were shared this morning highlighted that fact. So we have guilty consciences before a holy God, and there is nothing we can do before a holy God to cleanse our consciences, except that Jesus died in place of his people, and for those who repent and place their faith in him, and have a walk of faithful faith, persevering faith, continual trust and allegiance to Jesus, he cleanses their consciences before a holy God. And so that's part of what Paul is saying here, is that when one is in Christ, there is complete freedom from guilt and shame and uh, that is, would otherwise be rightful before a holy God. 
But not only that, the, the idea is that you now live in a clear conscience. You now live faithfully in allegiance to Christ in a way that honors him such that you don't, uh, uh, that there's no moral guilt, right? You're not, you're not excusing, well, Jesus is going to cover it. I'll live however I want. No, you're saying Jesus has died for me. He's bought me. He's purchased me. So I want to live a life in a clear conscience. I don't want to go after anything that would defile my conscience. And so the idea is, is these people have embraced the gospel. They've embraced Jesus and they are living in light of that faithfully, not perfectly. No one is perfect, this side of heaven, but faithfully, faithfully with a clear conscience. These are the people that need to be assistants to the elders. Here's another way you could think about it. The the deacons, even though the elders have a primary responsibility of teaching and shepherding through the ministry of the word, uh, uh, rebuking uh, wrong doctrine and encouraging right doctrine, teaching sound doctrine, the deacons are to be no, uh, they're not to be theological slouches. They're not to just say, oh, we'll just leave that to the elders. Really, no member should. It's the idea of we want to keep pressing into Christ. We want to live holding fast to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And so you get the idea with these character qualifications that Paul is listing, this is going to take some time to show itself. This is going to take some time to show itself, which is why he says in verse 10, let them, the deacons, also be tested first. The idea of the word tested here is the idea of proving a metal. So you put a, a metal into Um, uh, incredible heat and it burns off impurities the impurities show itself and then what remains is a is a good pure metal that's the idea of testing something here and so it's a beautiful picture for describing that the deacons the assistants that you're thinking about proposing to uh, come alongside the elders in their ministry they've got to be tested they've got to be proven Proven in what way? Does that mean they take an exam, uh, like a doctrinal exam? Uh, describe to me the nature of the Trinity. Well, probably they ought to know those things. They ought to know the basic tenets of the Orthodox faith, but more so what Paul is alluding to here is uh, proving themselves blameless, showing by their actions that they are already serving. Remember we said last week that all members are to serve in the church, and so if everyone's serving, it's the idea that the, the ones who are going to eventually be appointed as deacons, as assistants, are going to show proven character, and those are the people. They're already doing the work. They're already doing what should be done. And then it's just a matter of the congregation and the elders saying, hey, that person, that person would make a great deacon because they're already proven. They're already doing what is necessary. What's interesting here, too, um, there's a little... Um, there's a little word here that also indicates uh, that it's not just the deacons who are to be tested. Notice this in verse 10. Let them also be tested first. Now, who's the also in referring to? Well, Paul is just in that very brief little word saying, uh, just like you're going to test the elders, you're going to test the deacons. Now, he didn't directly say earlier on in 3, 1 through 7 that the elders are to be tested but it's the same notion that before you hold the office of deacon, that before you hold the office of elder, you've got to show that character. You've got to show that activity and those who are whom you appoint. So, 
what are deacons to be in general? He's going to keep adding to this, but in general, who are they to be? Dignified. You can look at these people and point and say, emulate that person. That person's exemplary. Not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and they must be tested. So that is the general character quality for deacons. But next, in verse 11, we want to talk about the general character qualifications specific to women. General character qualifications specific to women. Now, there is great debate uh, on this verse. In verse 11, what is it referring to? Uh, let me go ahead and read it, how it just, if you were to just take it from the original, not add any frills, not add any kind of interpretive nuances, here's how it literally reads. Verse 11, women likewise dignified, not slanderous, temperate, faithful in all things. Now, some of your translations, like the ESV, the ESV reads, their wives. And it, the ESV is making an interpretive decision. It's saying, okay, these women who are being talked about, they must be the deacon's wives. They must be those who come alongside their husbands as they do diaconal work, as they assist the, the elders. So that's reflected in the translation of the ESV. If you have an NASB, it's just going to say what the original says, wives. Or, uh, women, sorry. It's just going to say women. No there, just women. There is no there in the original. It just says women. So here's the big question. Who in the world is he talking to? He's talking about these women. And I think we could all agree on this. Whoever these women are, uh, they, have, uh, they work in diaconal ministry of some, in some way or another. So even if they're wives of the deacons, the male deacons, uh, what, he's, what is Paul saying to Timothy? He's saying um, the, the, these wives need to have this care, sort of character quality because they're doing the work alongside their husbands. So they're involved in diaconal work too. Or the alternative interpretation is that this is a reference to women deacons. Now, I argue for the latter view, that these are women deacons. Why? Let me give you a few reasons because this is important that we understand this. Let me give you a few reasons. Uh, notice how Paul started. I'm going to take you back up to 1 Timothy 3, um, verse 2. And he starts with overseers. And you're like, why are we going back there? You'll see in a minute. He says this in verse 2 of 1 Timothy 3. Therefore, an overseer must be, and there's two verbs there in Greek that work together to say that an overseer must be this, okay? When you go down, after you go through the elder qualification list to verse 8, um, literally, verse 8 just reads this, deacons likewise dignified. You see there's no verb. Why not? Because Paul is assuming that you're smart enough to carry over the verb from verse 2 down to verse 8. And translations just kind of automatically do this for you, which is right and good. Uh, deacons likewise must be dignified. Well, like I said, um, the start of verse 11 reads this way. Women likewise dignified. Well, what is Paul doing? He's doing the exact same thing he did in verse 8. He's expecting you to carry down the verb from verse 2 to verse 8 and then to verse 11. But from verse 2 to verse 8, he moved an office. Right? He, he moved from overseers to deacons. 
And I would argue what he is doing from verse 8 to verse 11 and switching from a male focus to a female focus is he's saying, I've talked about male deacons. Let me also talk now about female deacons. The other reason I argue this way is that Paul doesn't have a word like we have in English like deaconess. There is no female Greek form for the word deaconess at this point in history. So the question remains, if Paul wanted to talk about a female deacon, how would he do it? And he would do it exactly the way he's doing it here. Because notice what he does also. He talks about male deacons, and then he switches over to the women, but then uh, we'll get to verse 12, uh, verse 12 here in a second. But then he, in verse 12, it's very clear he's jumping back to male deacons. Now, why in the world would he do that? Well, if his goal is to talk about female deacons, then this is the way he does it. He doesn't have a specific word, so what does he do? He sandwiches it. He says, I want to talk about some women here, and I'm going to sandwich that in discussion between deacons. And so what is he showing? He's showing, we're in the realm of deacons. We're talking about deacons, so the women I'm talking about in verse 11 are deacons. Again, there's no difference in the word in Greek. So he, he is explicitly, I believe, saying we're talking about women in the diaconal office. Okay? What else, how else would I argue this? I would argue this also from Romans 16, 1 and 2. You can turn there briefly. We talked about this briefly last week. So I'm talking about why I think this view is correct, and then we will go through the character qualifications here in a minute, which is our main focus. We've got to understand who are we referring to here. I mentioned last week that um, Romans 16, 1 and 2 is a debated text. Um, and let's go ahead and read it again. Romans 16, 1 and 2. So uh, Paul is talking to the churches. There's actually multiple churches that he's writing to in Rome. And, uh, he, but the, real, the, the reality is he doesn't have a postal service that's available to him to just um, uh, send a letter. So he, he has to send it by courier. And it seems as though uh, Phoebe, who he's going to mention here, is the courier of the letter of Romans to the Roman churches. Romans 16, 1 and 2. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a diakonos. So it might be translated in your uh, text, uh, servant, which is a legitimate rendering but it's an interpretive decision, a diakonos of the church of Centria. Centria was about five miles away on the coast from Corinth. Paul is probably in Corinth when he writes this letter. That you may welcome her in, a, 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 welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. What is Paul's primary purpose in this verse? He's commending, meaning he's listing the stuff uh, for why the churches in Rome should accept this woman and, her, and, uh, and help her on her way. So the first thing he lists is that she's a sister. She's a, a fellow believer in Christ. The next thing he lists is that she is a diakonos of the church in Cetria. Now, we said last week that that word diakonos can just mean something like courier. And so some people say, well, he's just saying that Phoebe's a courier of the church. I don't think so, because... That's obvious. She arrived, she brought the letter, she's a courier. But what is Paul's intent? To commend. So how is he commending? She's saying, this woman holds the office of deacon at the church 
in Cetria, which is huge commendation because we already saw what sort of quali- character quality the deacons are supposed to have. And so that is a huge commendation to Phoebe. So I do think Paul is referring in Romans 16, 1 through 2 to a female deaconess or a female deacon. All that to say, at least what my argument would be in 1 Timothy 3, that when Paul's referring to women here, he is referring to female deacons. He's referring to female deacons. Deacons are assistants to the elders. They don't have a primary teaching role, which is reserved for the elders, which are the elders are to be male. But the deacons, as a rule, don't have that sort of authority, don't have that sort of teaching role, and so it is open to women. Now, that being said, as far as the argument is concerned of who are these women that are being mentioned here, what is the character quality? What is the character quality? Women, likewise, must be dignified. Same thing that starts the list for deacons. They should be exemplary. You should be able to look at them and their behavior and in their faith and see that uh, this, this is um, a quality woman and worthy of imitation. Not slanders. Now, that kind of matches the double-tongued idea, doesn't it, right? Deacons are not to be double-tongued. They're not to say one thing and do another. This more has the idea of speech that tears down, which happens, right? Uh, Women have, uh, in the past, in history, and you can see it, there's a tendency to tear things down with their speech. And so Paul targets it to that reality, not slanders. That's going to tear apart the church. What are, what are deacons supposed to do? They're supposed to be assistants, and like we said last week, they're supposed to guard the unity of the church. Well, if you've got someone who's slanderous, that's going to tear at the unity of the church. What else are they to be? They're to be temperate. Temperate, which matches the idea of not being devoted to much uh, wine and the, the, the earlier deacons list. It's in a broader sense. It's not just about alcohol, but it's about you're balanced. You're balanced in how you do things. You're not uh, over-focused on one thing. And what? Finally, faithful in all things. That's pretty broad-reaching. I think probably what Paul is saying, he's corresponding that to what he said earlier, let the deacons first be tested and show themselves blameless. And so here in verse 11, it's just a shorter way for Paul to say, yeah, these women are to be tested. They're to be show themselves as faithful in all things, in their homes and outside their homes, in the church and in their homes. They're to show themselves faithful in all things. So what is Paul doing? In verses 8 through 10, he's saying, here are the general qualifications for deacons. And I believe in verse 11, he's giving the general qualifications for women deacons, tailored and targeted to them. But there's more. Paul's not done. See, he holds deacons high. He holds this office high because of what it does. Assistance to the elders to guard the unity of the church, to help guard the preaching of the word and prayer. And then he switches back in verse 12 to home life requirements. So he's going to add on some more requirements, one, uh, a little bit more in verse 12. And again, I think he's talking in terms of a category. So he is addressing it first to men. But then I will show you that there are similar, not identical, character qualities for women. Verse 12, let deacons, so now he's back to deacons in particular, let deacons each be men of one woman. So your translation might say husband of one wife, but literally reads men of one woman. 
And the idea of that is not so much that you were married once. The idea is that you are, we talked about this before in regard to the elders, that you are devoted physically and emotionally to one, uh, to one woman. Doesn't address the issue if that wife died or anything like that. It just says that if you are, uh, even it can address someone who's single. The idea is that you have the kind of character where you have a mindset that you're devoted to one and only one woman at a time. Also, managing their children and their own households well. So, Paul is clearly here going back to the household. He did this for the elders. He's doing this for the deacons. He's saying, uh, he uses the same word. He uses the word for managing that he used earlier in 1 Timothy 3. And remember what I said earlier, the household is not just your children, although that is very much included here in this section. It is the general operation and household economy. And so he's addressing men specifically in verse 12, and he's saying, uh, you've got to show yourself in your household, you've got to show yourself dedicated to your wife, uh, and you've got to show yourself that you're managing the overall household well, and you've also got to show yourself uh, that you're managing your, within that your children well. So home life requirements. Now, you might say, going back to our discussion earlier in verse 11 about the women, it's like, well, this is clearly men he's talking to. And I agree. He is clearly talking to men in verse 12. But if you switch over to 1 Timothy 5, you will see that Paul desires the same, or the, um, the uh, corresponding, that's a better way to say it, the corresponding character quality for women. 1 Timothy 5.9. Now here he's talking about widows in particular, but what you will see is that he desires in general the same character qualities that he's talking to specifically for men in 1 Timothy 3.12. He desires those also for women in a corresponding sort of way. 1 Timothy 5 verse 9. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, and then here it is, having been the woman of one man. See, Paul flips it around. He's saying women should be characterized, just as men are, by a dedication to one, one person, one man. In the woman's case, in the man's case, one woman. So Paul just flips it around. That's a desirable trait for all Christian women. But then he also, uh, in talking about managing household well, that was uh, uh, verse 12 in 1 Timothy 3, there's a corresponding responsibility for women. Skip down to 1 Timothy 5, verse 14. Paul says, So I would have the younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households. Now, the word here is slightly different, but it's the idea that, yeah, a woman is managing aspects of the household as well. So when we think about that, that those are desirable character qualities for a woman when Paul is talking in 1 Timothy 3.12 and he says, here's what it looks like for men, he is talking also categorically and saying, yeah, here's what, uh, he's kind of assuming that you can make the transfer over to women as well. Now, why is it important? Why is the home life important for a deacon? Because what is a deacon to be? Dignified, an example holding fast the mystery of the faith. They're examples. Even as they go about their assisting task with the elders, they're examples to the rest of the flock. And so they need to be exemplary in the proving ground for the church, which is the home. 
the home, both for men and for women. Now, Paul has laid out all of these character qualities. He's talked about general character qualities for men, general character qualities for women, home life requirements, and then he wraps up in verse 13 with a motivation. A motivation for Timothy, as we will see. Verse 13, for, don't miss the little word there, for. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now let's unpack Paul's logic a little bit here. He's been talking to Timothy, and he's telling Timothy, hey, make sure that that household there, that local church in Ephesus is well-ordered. So here's who elders are to be, here's who deacons are to be. And so that little four there supports what Paul has just said, and it supports it for Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, this is really important that you pay attention to this stuff as you appoint deacons. Why? Because those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, whatever that means, we'll talk about what it means here in a second, he is saying that this is the motivation for why you are selective in who you appoint to this office. Timothy, this is why you're selective, because you want the best in this office. You want these people in this office to serve well. Why? Because those who serve well, those who deacon well, gain a good standing for themselves. Let's start with that one. Gain a good standing for themselves, and for who? Well, yeah, for themselves, but in front of whom, right? Like, if you gain a good standing for yourselves, like, who's that in the audience of? Is it God? Or is it the church? And I would argue it's the church. As Christians, we all have equal standing in Christ before God. We are justified. We are declared righteous. We have clear consciences through the gospel. But when you appoint someone to the office of deacon, it's an affirmation of character. You're giving them a good standing in the community. A standing that is to be emulated. A standing that is to people around them say, if you want to look at Christian maturity, you look at this person who's a deacon male or female. So that's the first thing, a good standing for themselves in and amongst the local church. Then the second thing, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, this word that's translated here, confidence, um, originally, originally, uh, it used to mean freedom of speech. Like you could just, or the idea of frankness, right? The idea is that uh, in in uh, Greek towns, if you were a citizen, uh, you had freedom of speech. You could speak freely in the assembly. Uh, you could speak freely politically. And so it, it gradually kind of transformed into this idea of confidence. So if you have free speech, you have the confidence to be able to speak. Or even the idea of boldness. Boldness. And so what is Paul referring to here? I think boldness might be a better way to render it. They gain great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. It's not saying that they gain greater assurance in faith. It's saying the standing that they have in the community gives them great boldness. What does that mean? I think you can think about it like this. Um, these are the people you want to talk to. 
These are the people that you want to emulate. They have a great public presence within the community. Uh, They're open, right? Uh, And they have something to say to you. They have something to say to you. That's the idea. It's gaining good standing in the community, and it's gaining a great boldness. And if you even think about the example we read from Deacon Lawrence from AD 258, it's not only internal to the community, but it's external. Deacons that have the right character and they deacon well, they have something to say internal to the community, and they have something to say external to the community. So you can point to deacons and say, hey, you want to know what mature Christian faith looks like? Here it is. For the internal, go emulate this. For those external, this is what we're about. Look at one of our deacons. Look at one of how they serve. I think that's what Paul is speaking to there in verse 13. So he's saying to Timothy, go do, uh, make sure they have these character qualities. Make sure they're proven. Make sure they're tested. Why? Because you do it right, and there is great advance for the faith. There is great witness for the faith to the external world. So as we think about application this morning, as we've walked through this and described the character quality of deacons, deacons as assistants to the elders, they must be dignified. You were to sum it up, they're to be dignified with faithful faith. They're to be dignified with faithful faith. So what is the application for us as Faith Bible Church members? Uh, I exhorted you a couple weeks ago to hold uh, the standard for elders high. Keep it tight. Hold us, who are currently elders, to that standard. I'm going to exhort you to do the same thing for our male and female deacons. Hold them to the standard that Scripture lays out. If they're not, you need to talk to them about it and talk to the elders about it. The, 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 the qualifications are high because the stakes are high in terms of witness of the faith. And here's the other qualification, or here's the other application I already alluded to. Seek out, if you are a member of our church, seek out our male and female deacons as exemplars of the faith and learn from them. Learn how to serve the church from them. Everyone's supposed to serve, so where do you start? Well, start learning from our deacons on how they serve the church. So, uh, I don't know if you, any of you went this last week and looked on our website of our current uh, official deacons and deaconesses, but uh, these are the people you should seek out. You can seek out the elders too. You should do that as well, but you should be seeking out these people, guys like Hal Hansel and Tony Clark and Eden Lira and women like Brenda Thompson and Marion Wawrenka and all of our deacons and deaconesses, and you should be able to say, hey, uh, teach me about how, what does it mean to serve the church? Teach me what does it mean to follow Christ in a dignified way? Now, to our, and then along with that, just like we said to all of you, aspire to the character quality of elders, because that's really ordinary Christianity done well. Do the same thing for deacons. Aspire to the character quality of deacons, whether you're a male or a female. Aspire to that. Now, to our deacons, thank you. I thanked you last week. I thank you again this week. I thank you for your pursuit in growing in these character qualifications. See, the reality of the Christian life is you're never arrived. You're always growing. You're always trying to be more like Christ. You're always trying to grow in these character qualities. 
thank you to our deacons and deaconesses for pursuing and growing in these character qualifications. And keep growing. Excel still more. Keep growing in your service, but not only your service. Remember what Paul said, holding fast the mystery of the faith with a good conscience. Keep growing in your knowledge of the faith as you serve, as you assist. Don't just think that you do the practical stuff and don't need to grow in doctrine. Keep growing. Keep pursuing as you already have. All of what we are saying about offices, all that we've said about members and elders and deacons and why are we talking about this stuff, why are we talking about virtues and vices and assistance and shepherding and all of this stuff, why do we care? Because all of it flows out of where we kind of started today in a way, all of it flows out of the mystery of the faith, which we call the gospel. That God has become man in the person of Jesus Christ. He died for his people in their place to give them a clean conscience. He is resurrected again. He is at the right hand of the Father. He rules his church. He is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And he gives life to those who are his through repentance and faith. This is why we are a church. This is why we have members. This is why we have deacons. This is why we have elders. This is why we can aspire to these things and not be beat down. Like, I'm never going to attain that because I'm a sinner. Well, because Christ gives you his spirit in your life, you grow. You grow, you progress such that you are useful. You are useful to others and you are useful to proclaim the excellencies of Christ to the world. It's all about faithful faith. It's not a one-and-done decision. It's not just, I had faith at one point in my life and I'm good to go, or I had faith, but like Andrew said in his testimony up here, uh, now I've got to do the work of keeping my, in the faith. It, it's continual trust and dependence on Christ such that you can have a faithful faith, a growing faith, a persevering faith, because the Holy Spirit sent by Christ is at work within you enabling you to conquer sin and grow in virtue such that you can look like a dignified man, a dignified woman, not for yourself ultimately, but for those in the faith and for those external to the faith. Deacons as assistants to the elders must be dignified with faithful faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this series as we've talked about how do we, are we supposed to operate together? How are we supposed to work together for the sake of your name, your honor, and the proclamation of the gospel, the news about you, Lord Jesus, in the world? We thank you for the mystery of the faith that you, God, became man, died for your people, rose again, are ascended on high, are coming to judge the living and the dead, and will rescue your people and set all things to rights. Lord, we thank you for that. Grant us continual repentance and faith and pursuit of you because you are supreme gain. Lord, we thank you for this time. Help us to be the church that you've called us to be for your honor and for the proclamation of you in the world. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.